Hi everyone, welcome back to Hypothesis. I'm Amandine. I'm Killian. And we've been gone for a while. We did not intend to take such a long break. No. Um, we genuinely thought like the last time we recorded that we were going to be recording at least one more. And then we kind of finished college, we had stuff due and didn't happen. But yeah, we're back now, probably not as regularly since we are now no longer in the same country, currently yeah. in different time zones. And then we will be back in the same country again, not at home. Um, so yeah, we're just trying to sort through all that and yeah. also trying but to fit we, this in. But, but we did yeah. finish our degrees and our exams. So I think that's a good enough excuse for a break, personally. Yeah, no, definitely <laughs> is. Definitely is. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about the brain, specifically sickness in the brain, inflammation, and how that can kind of affect your mood. Um, and Killian's going to start us off, sickness behavior, I think, which I'm yeah. really excited to hear about because I used to know about it and now <laughs> I forget it all. So I want to see if I remember any of it. Yeah. So uh, sickness behavior is sort of like, so it's why when you get an infection, like you get a flu or something like that, you feel really crap and you don't really want to do things. That's sort of like summary of what sickness behavior means. So you'd wonder like, why is sickness behavior a thing? Why would we evolve to have you know, to be all down in the dumps and crap when we're sick. And it's firstly, it's because fever, like having a fever costs a lot of energy. So you need to suppress all non-essential activities in your body in order to really give a full fight to the pathogen. So by raising your temperature and that sort of thing, you know, the fever can help eliminate it. So then mm -hmm. you get back to normal as quick as possible. And then also from an evolutionary perspective, you don't want um, to go out hunting when you're sick yeah. so like if you actually feel really tired you know you maybe won't go out and injure yourself or die because you're a bit sick on the hunt um you also don't want to socialize because if you're talking about like a tribe scenario or you're around a lot of family ah. you don't want to spread the infection so yeah that makes so, sense yeah so we've evolved to sort of have our brains think we don't want to socialize we just want to stay in bed but it's actually so that we don't infect others close to us and actually make things way worse for our genes, which are obviously in our family as well. And then uh, another reason is that we that you don't want to eat when you're sick um, is because it could have been the thing that you ate that actually made you sick because our ancestors wouldn't mm. have known, for example, what makes you sick and what doesn't. So if you eat something yeah. and you feel really sick, your brain is telling you don't eat for a while because you might still have that thing around and maybe that's what made you sick. So it actually is an evolutionary adaptation to not making yourself sick again which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I think I remember someone saying that like it was you want to just stay in bed because it just helps you fight it. Like if you're out running yeah. a marathon, you're not going to be able to overcome no. your sickness. So exactly. That's why you just want to stay in bed. But I didn't know about all the other stuff by passing it on. And so that's yeah, really those, those are some theories. I think they're kind of hard to prove, but it does make sense. Yeah, from yeah it makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. we're just going to assume that they're real. <laughs> yeah. It's um, fun to, to guess that they are. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously all the sickness behavior that makes you feel down in the dumps it can also be associated with depression because it's very similar kind of symptoms and um, so there's a possible link mm -hmm. between the immune system and depression because maybe the way that we fight infection and our responses that prevent its spread are actually contributing to in, if you have a long-term infection or you get long-term symptoms even when the infection is gone if there's some sort of dysregulation for example then maybe that could lead to long-term depression so that's being investigated all around the world. You know, people are looking into yeah. inflammation and depression and how they're linked. Um, and a lot of people think it could be mediated, at least to some extent, by cytokines. 
which uh, you probably heard me talk about before if you listen to the podcast, but they're just immune signals. So you can think about their little messengers sent around by immune cells, usually to other immune cells, but also to any cell of your body, just to let them know what's happening in terms of infection or inflammation or whether you need to calm down the immune system. Mm -hmm. So um, these cytokines, these messengers can actually cross the blood brain barrier. So some of you might've heard of this idea of the blood brain barrier before, where it's sort of a lot of things that are in the rest of your body can't get to your brain very easily because of this blood brain barrier, but it's not quite as like solid as we used to think. So things like cytokines and small molecules can get through it. Um, But bigger things like cells usually can't. Yeah, because when you say blood brain barrier, a lot of the time people think of like a physical barrier, which kind of is, but I think now it's more being described as like the properties of the endothelial cells in the brain so they have different properties other endothelial cells around your body um yeah yeah yeah, so just they're not as loose like don't like you said don't let in as much stuff in and out another thing as well when it comes to the brain is the term immune privilege which always used to throw me off privilege obviously like you know sounds like something good and to me the immune system sounds good but immune privilege means that you don't have immune yeah. like cells getting in which used to really throw me off and confuse me yeah but, it was confusing to me yeah. as well the way i kind of think of it is something is immune privileged if it's you know i, I don't know in my head i could have thought of it like oh you're so good you don't even need immune cells you're immune privileged but uh the reason oh, immune privilege is is a thing um is because your immune cells if they can't get to all parts of your body they don't need to um see like antigens in every part of the body so that mm. i think i talked a, a bit about before when we talked about autoimmunity which i'm pretty sure we did maybe we didn't <laughs> but um I, essentially i don't remember if your immune cells can get into an immune privilege site which means somewhere where immune cells usually aren't then because they've never seen what's there before they might attack it yeah. so for example in things like ms mm-hmm. um, that's why um, they can attack you know parts of nerve fibers because the immune cells just haven't seen them before so they assume it's something dangerous yeah. Um, so I think that's the idea of immune mm-hmm. privilege, uh, kind of summarized, maybe in a poor way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, these cytokines that cross the blood-brain barrier um, are what triggered this sickness behavior, or at least that's what's hypothesized. Um, and it's thought that uh, the cytokines make their way from anywhere in other parts of the body, like so systemically, they can be traveling in your bloodstream, but also... Uh, there are immune cells in your brain that can be activated by these cytokines to then produce even more cytokines from within your brain. So it's mm-hmm. sort of this, there's several different places it can happen. So we okay. don't know things like chronic depression or just sickness behavior in general. Is it more got to do with the systemic things, what's happening in the rest of your body, or is it the yeah. way that that stuff impacts what's in your brain? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the cytokine production that happens within that. So that's something that's sort of being investigated which one of those yeah. is more important what what's the target um but the thing is there's because there's several different components at play it could be there could be more than one target which is yeah. not ideal when you're trying to create a treatment um mm-hmm. because if you have to target multiple things at once that's obviously much more difficult um so there are immune cells called perivascular macrophages and they release cytokines when they um encounter uh, like pathogen associated molecular patterns they're called so something like um the outside of gram-negative bacteria has something called LPS, lipopolysaccharide, mm-hmm. and our immune systems are really primed to respond to this because it's only found on this type of bacterium. So you'd never normally have it in your body, 
So your immune yeah. cells know if I see this, this means it's an infection. So your body mm -hmm. really reacts very strongly to LPS. So it's used a lot of the time in these studies to see the effect of inflammation on mood and different things like that. And there's also, uh, sorry, th those things like LPS can also cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, so if you have these sort of bits of pathogens that can cross the blood-brain barrier or at least get near it, they could be triggering yeah. the cytokine responses that actually lead to the sickness behavior. Even if you're okay. not that sick, it could just be small parts that linger. I'll sort of get back to that when we talk a bit about uh, COVID and the brain. Um, then there's also another part yeah. of sickness behavior, which is the vagus nerve. So this is a nerve that um, goes into your periphery. So it's your tissues all over your body. It's not just in the brain. But when that nerve is activated, um, they induce the activation of neurons in parts of the brain that are known to promote sickness behavior. Um, and then the vagus nerve can also activate production of these cytokines that then lead to even more sickness behavior after that. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, they did this study, well, they, some scientists, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, where in mice, uh, they, they actually removed the vagus nerve from okay. some mice and they showed limited signs of sickness behavior, whether they injected cytokines into them or uh, LPS, which we know is very inflammatory. But if there was a lot of inflammation present, so if they gave them really high doses of cytokines or of LPS, um, the animals could still have fevers and stress responses and that kind of thing. So just because the vagus nerve is gone doesn't mean all sickness behavior yeah. is gone. It's just a component of it. So, okay, yeah. Yeah, so e even if it's gone, there's ways that these cytokines can get to the brain, either through the blood-brain mm -hmm. barrier or some other way. Uh, so right. again, there's redundancy in this system. So even if you knock out one part, they're still yeah. there. And again, for treatments, that's obviously a, a bit of an issue. Um, and then the part of the brain that's pretty involved in um, this whole behavioral suppression is the amygdala. Uh, so I don't really know much about these terms. I haven't done an awful lot of neuroscience, but from what I understand, it's like associated in this context with decreased social interactions and anxiety and fear and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, so, I wouldn't know either. Maybe fear rings a bell, but I actually, yeah. I'm the same. I, I really do. My neuroanatomy is <laughs> pretty bad. I don't it's know it's very you. tough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we did a little bit on it in our course and uh, yeah, I found it very tough. I avoided it where I know I the word hippocampus and <laughs> yeah. that's it. Um, I, I think that's memory, maybe. But oh, don't yeah. quote I think it is that. actually. Yeah. Um, and then related to this again, some recent research suggests that inflammation in the brain could cause depressive symptoms. So it could be that there's this yeah. chronic inflammatory response that's happening in mm. your brain without stimulation that just isn't able to shut itself off that can cause um, you know, depression, but we don't know what induces this inflammation. Um, a lot of people would hypothesize that it's microglia, which are the yeah. immune cells of the brain. They look very like macrophages, um, mm -hmm. but they're not exactly the same. Um, and interestingly, if the researchers knock out uh, TLR4, which is what senses LPS and triggers this massive inflammatory response, um, but if they only knock it out on peripheral immune cells, so ones in your blood and other parts of your body, yeah. so not the microglia, um, they could still induce sickness behavior. So that shows that it's not always coming from the periphery either, that it must be something in the brain. So right. again, this, this mix of results saying that the vagus nerve is important, so it's about the system. And then there's other research yeah. suggesting that it's all about the brain. So again, highlighting again wait, wait. and again that... Did you say yeah. the LPS can cross into the brain? Yeah, they believe it yeah. can. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so it yeah. could be that 
the LPS um, injection got into the brain because they knocked yeah. out the LPS sensors mm-hmm. um, in all other parts of the body. So, okay. yeah. And then, uh, then sickness behavior isn't just about the sort of social aspects and that kind of thing. In terms of metabolism, sickness behavior can be great um, because you might have heard of this phrase, uh, you should starve a fever and feed a cold. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and until relatively recently, they don't really know. If they, ha- they didn't really know if there was much scientific backing behind this, but now there's <laughs> some evidence for it. Um, so it may be true depending on the causal agent. So for a bacterial infection, um, bacteria can actually use glucose. So if you're taking in like a lot of sugar or a lot of food in general, um, the bacteria can actually use that sometimes much better than your immune system can. So by taking in lots of food, that's actually going to make things worse. So that might be why sickness behavior as well stops you eating so that you won't actually give that glucose to the bacteria. So your, your body can switch to ketogenesis mm-hmm. if you restrict your diet for a period of time. So that's something your immune cells can do um, and other parts of your body, whereas the bacteria can't, they, they need the glucose. But then the opposite is true for viral infections, where if you take in loads of food and loads of glucose, that'll actually really help you fight it. So I, I wonder, yeah. you know, is there a difference in our sickness behavior responses depending on the type of infection or do the pathogens Maybe. even have a way of subverting that and actually tricking our immune system or our bodies into doing the opposite because i'd imagine that would be obviously very beneficial yeah. for them so it must be at some level mm-hmm. there must be some kind of uh, switching around of the responses um and interestingly these inflammatory cytokines that cause like lots of inflammation can also cause glucose to be maintained at a low level so this also prevents bacteria from using it so it's all uh, very ah, linked there's cool. actually a, a trinity researcher yeah. um dr colin cunningham who actually showed this link between inflammatory cytokines and glucose levels only last year um yeah. so that's pretty interesting he showed that low glucose can also yeah. drive sickness behavior so um that's so yeah. cool i love um I love when little sayings like that, that you're like, oh, we don't really know where they come from. And then yeah. they, ha- they get this scientific backing. Oh, like, that's the coolest thing ever. Yeah, that's I love great. those. Um, so yeah. I, I, don't know, I just have a little bit more here on the whole idea of sickness behavior and systemic inflammation. And um, then I'll let you, you go on. Uh, so <laughs> it's thought that microglia in like inflamed brains, so people who have like neurodegeneration, like, uh, you know, Alzheimer's or a similar disease, um, mm-hmm. that those microglia are primed to produce even more inflammatory responses, which is why people with neurodegeneration also have more depressive symptoms and more delirium yeah. and this sort of thing, because it's actually, they have even more inflammation because of the plaques in their brains. Um, so there's okay. this link again between the immune system and these mood disorders. So yeah. for example, um, up to 20% of people in hospitals at any given time are suffering with delirium because they have some sort of disorder that can trigger these responses and yet we still don't actually know at the core of it like the biological mechanism behind delirium so it's still yeah. something that needs to be uh, treated but we don't know how and there seems to be a major link between delirium inflammation and increased rate of cog- cognitive decline so this inflammation not mm. only makes you feel really bad but actually if you're suffering from a neurodegenerative disease it actually makes the decline even worse so Obviously, there's plenty of reasons to, yeah. you know, look into this area. Um, and in terms of treatments and that kind of thing, I remember hearing about um, these anti-TNF drugs. So TNF is one of these inflammatory cytokines. And anti-TNF is a drug that stops this inflammatory cytokine from doing its job um, of activating immune cells. 
So it's a really good treatment for autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, for example. But interestingly, when researchers started giving um, anti-TNF to patients, um, it was a drug called Remicade. They noted something called the Remicade high, where yeah. essentially patients who had arthritis and were given this drug to slow the progression and stop their immune cells from you know, overactivating, they actually mm-hmm. felt a lot better. They are, their mood lifted up and it was almost, yeah. you know, they call it the high because it was almost like they were on a drug, like, you know, <laughs> recreational yeah. drug. But it was actually just because the TNF was obviously calling some, causing some kind of sickness behavior. So without that, they suddenly felt really happy. Yeah. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, there's some evidence to suggest that um, TNF and that kind of thing, uh, sorry, anti-TNF can actually um, improve symptoms of depression and that kind of thing. But that's only really where it's caused by inflammation. So there was a yeah. trial where it was used and it didn't show much of, you know, of a, an effect. But then when mm-hmm. they only used it in patients who had depression and had um, very high inflammatory responses in their system, then it actually helped the depression. So again, yeah. depression is very, um, you know, multifaceted. Treating one little yeah. part uh, won't, won't solve the problem unless that is the main cause of that type of depression. So very complicated area. But I think there's yeah. lots of really interesting uh, directions the research is going. So Definitely yeah. is. Like that is really interesting, especially when you hear of like someone with a chronic illness or like uh, some sort of inflammatory disease and, you know, depression couldn't come along with that. And you could just say like, oh, they're depressed because they're sick and like that's sad and because it's going to last a long time. But now they're showing that necessarily you know like a a psychological thing of oh I'm going to be sick for a long time so that's making me depressed it's kind of more like no actually biologically having that disease is making you depressed if you know what I mean yeah it's Um, not the idea of it it's actually the disease itself yeah yeah and that kind of shocked me when I heard it for the first time I had never considered that the actual disease was actually biologically as opposed to psychologically yeah. Uh, which is something that I find really interesting. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, um, in terms of, you know, inflammation and the brain and all of that, they're finding links now that it can influence the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. So this barrier that we were talking about with the endothelial cells. So if you sort of, I don't know, hold your fingers together, like your index and your thumb, that would be like your endothelial cell and where they meet together you would have this tight junction. So you have these specific proteins, like tight junction proteins, like occluded or cladin 5 or junction adhesion molecules, and they stick together and make it really tight. So you would have some sort of tight junction proteins in other parts of your the actual size of molecules that could cross um, the blood-brain barrier and I couldn't find any specific ones which is really frustrating me because I know I learned the size but I forget it now so I'm sorry guys (laughs) Um, but we used to believe that this barrier was sort of a passive thing it was just there but now we're kind of well I say we I mean scientists are starting to realize that it actually is playing a functional role in in homeostasis for example like in the brain regulating which molecules get in and out um, mm. because 
you can have the so transport across the blood brain barrier is something that's important not necessarily through that tight junction um area but also within the actual cell so paracellular transport that's across the tight junction but you can also get transcellular transport which is across the cell and for in terms of transcellular transport that's a passive process and so is paracellular kind of depends on the concentrations of the molecules uh, within the blood and within the brain whether it can cross or not but then you have more active um, transport systems for example proteins so we were talking about glucose in the brain earlier the GLUT1 transporter is on uh, is specific to brain endothelial cells and that transports glucose into the brain you can have these efflux transporters the ABC transporters stands for ATP binding cassette transporter yes. and they are involved in the efflux of drugs is like kind of the main part that's really important but they would be sort of like neurotoxic agents um, and they're found on the luminal side so I actually don't think I mentioned luminal but luminal is the side that is closest to the blood and so it makes sure that these drugs don't actually get to the brain, don't have access. And that's why drug delivery can be so challenging um, because you have these active transporters there stopping the drugs from actually the brain. You can also have this thing called receptor-mediated transcytosis where um, there's a receptor on the side facing the blood. And once you have a ligand that binds, so this could be like an antibody or a peptide, it gets endocytose, so sort of like a vesicle, vesicle, however you want to say it, forms around it and brings it through the cell to the side of the brain. And then the last form is um, adsor adsorptive transcytosis. So this is more of a, it's, it's less specific. It's sort of like anything with a positive charge because the membrane is negatively charged, uh, gets attracted to it and the same sort of endocytosis and a vesicle formation and bringing things into the brain. And it's been found that inflammation can alter transport across the blood-brain barrier and also alter the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. So that when you have this increased inflammation, it's been associated with a decrease in expression of tight junction proteins. So that means that more cells, or not more cells, sorry, more molecules can get into the brain normally have access to the brain and this could I mean depending on what molecule can get across could lead to maybe neuroinflammation like we were saying or you know if it's not supposed to be there it's probably going to cause a problem you know there's a yeah. reason why there's a barrier so yeah it's interesting that there's so many different types of transport across the blood-brain barrier and yet yeah you know inflammation can just kind of open it up so much more exactly. things get in than normal it's it's pretty yeah. bad so yeah, so usually it's really, really tightly regulated. It's really, really important that things don't have access to the brain that shouldn't. And so when you have this breakdown, it can have pretty bad effects. And so now they're linking, like we mentioned, inflammation with mood disorders or psychiatric disorders, um, and not only inflammation, but actually blood-brain barrier breakdown. So these are things in like bipolar or schizophrenia or major depressive disorder where I suppose traditionally we would have thought that, you know, neurons firing, neurotransmitters like dopamine or serotonin that make you feel good, there would be problems with maybe you can't produce that specific neurotransmitter or maybe you don't have the receptor for that transmitter, therefore you don't have 
that good feeling. And this is not to say that that is not the case. In these disorders, um, there are problems with neuron firing, with neurotransmitters, neuroreceptors, um, or sorry, neurotransmitter receptors, but now they're also starting to realize that it's not all about the neurons, that looking at the link between the blood and the brain, and specifically the blood-brain barrier, and how it breaks down, um, can have an effect on, on these mood disorders, which is, you know, it, it's, it makes sense, because if you think of drugs that are treating mood disorders at the moment, um, only about 30 or 40 percent of people actually respond or no sorry 30 or 40 people percent of people respond poorly um and so you know maybe maybe if they respond well it'll work for a while but then they it doesn't work anymore so it just means that we're not hitting the right target with these drugs and it also means you know and it's not i mean it's not a secret that we don't fully understand it yet um but that's because like i said it's just so complicated there. It's, there's so much involved. It's not just you're targeting one gene. It's not like you're just targeting one specific uh, part of the brain or one cell type. Like you're, there's just so many aspects to it. And that's also something when you're thinking, like telling someone or diagnosing someone with a disorder such as schizophrenia or depression or anxiety or something like that, giving them a name is good you know we we it's good to help them realize what they have but on the sort of medical side or biological side we're noticing now that it's not just you have depression you have anxiety you have schizophrenia you have bipolar like they're all linked um mm. they're just all linked it's not just two it's, it's a venn diagram you know yeah and so that's why someone can have more than one mood disorder and why the diagnoses change a lot also, it's a lot of the time a diagnosis of exclusion. So someone will come in, let's say they have hallucinations, and you say, okay, you know, are you on drugs? Did you take some sort of hallucinogenic? Is there some sort of in your brain? Is there a bacteria? Because, you know, some bacteria can cause you to hallucinate. And by knocking out all these things, asking them how they're feeling, that's how you diagnose them. And that's how you give them a diagnosis. And you can't really do that with cells or animal models like you can't ask a mouse how are you feeling today you know are you sad are you happy so that's some that's kind of a challenge as well so that we have models in mice for example for different aspects of say depression you know mice that don't I can't remember that there's a specific word where you don't enjoy things that you used to enjoy um but for example, if you if you give them the option between sugared flavored water or normal water, right. which one will they pick? Usually they will always pick sugar. Um, and then if they have this depressive like behavior, they don't mind which one they drink anymore um, mm. because they lose that sort of the, the happiness or the pleasure that they get from drinking the sugar. So um, coming up with models is kind of it's not I wouldn't say challenging um, because there are so many of them, but it's just that need to keep in mind that they might not necessarily show all aspects of mm. a certain disorder and you can't say that a mouse is depressed because you can't ask them you have to always say you know depressive like behavior when you're talking yeah. about say a mouse or something and um i suppose kind of connected to that is the lack of a biological marker for mood disorders so you know let's say if you have covid that you know you're like okay is the 
you get a PCR test and tell if COVID is in your system or not. Something like anemia, say if there's a lack of iron, you can get a blood test and see, are you missing iron? Okay, yes, you are. Or if it's, say, sickle cell anemia, are your red blood cells sickle shaped? But in terms of a mood disorder, we don't have a biological marker. So it's really, really difficult to, first of all, pinpoint what the person actually has wrong with them biologically and also how do you treat it? Because once you understand what's going wrong, it's easier to find a solution, obviously. (laughs) You know know what problem you're trying to fix. If you don't know what problem you're trying to fix, then obviously it's a lot harder. for schizophrenia, one kind of marker that's sort of being connected is this thing called S100 calcium binding protein B. And it's produced by some astrocytes in the brain, which is just a type of glia cell. Um, I was trying to find out the actual function of uh, S100 beta, but I, I just couldn't. I know that it's involved in phosphorylation because it kind of binds a kinase or something, but like I couldn't find the specific function. So I apologize. Well, basically, um, usually it re- it's produced in the brain and in the, in the cells in the brain and it's present there in the cytoplasm and the nucleus of astrocytes. And it can get into your uh, blood. So you can test for levels of it, but it's not that high. And what they find is in uh, patients diagnosed with schizophrenia that you have higher levels of S100 beta in the blood and com- compared to controls. Mm. Um, and so it's actually also what's seen, been seen as a marker of blood-brain barrier breakdown. So oh. when you see this elevated levels of S100 beta in the blood, you can say, okay, there's some sort of blood-brain barrier breakdown. And it's also kind of hints to um, some sort of dysregulation in the brain. Right. There isn't a correlation between the amount of, of S100 beta and the severity of the schizophrenia. That's not something that's been... Mm but it is just to say that there are it does mean that there's something happening in the brain that is shouldn't be happening right and yeah yeah, so that's something to keep in mind and also that there's different levels of s100 beta in summer and winter which kind of yeah that kind of throws people especially in research when you're trying to compare your results with someone else that's why there could be variance in in research findings is that Mm. it's not just you know if you're diagnosed with something and if you're a control it's also what time of year is it? you know there's all these other aspects that we need to consider and yeah. um, sex is another thing it's a that we need to consider it's like a biological variable that's now starting to be recognized because I'm sure we've all heard you know that most of the studies were done in, in males and um it's not necessarily the case for females a big mm. thing at the moment that's going around is ADHD and how that you know is comes across differently in females um yeah. and that's something that's going i think is going to be taken into account definitely way more um and one example of that is stress and how chronic stress can lead to a breakdown of the blood brain barrier you get this decrease in clodive um and it's also associated with inflammation and depressive like behaviors and it was found that female mice were more susceptible uh, to stress than males I think it took six days of chronic stress for the females to develop depressive life symptoms um, and it took the males something like 20 days or 21 so there is a big difference I did read somewhere that um, 
the sex differences seen in mice could be more extreme than that seen in humans, which mm. is also something to take into account, trying to compare your model to implementing it in a human. Yeah. Um, but they are trying to verify it with human tissue samples and um, kind of looking at does the gene expression in a human kind of correlate to that of a mouse and kind of trying to uh, show it that way. Um, another thing to look at as well when you're looking at these models is not only where does it, you know, comparing your stress susceptible to your controls, but also looking at, say, resilient mice in this particular study. And in this case, resilient means that they were, uh, they experienced the same stress as the mice that developed uh, depressive-like behaviours, but the resilient mice did not. And when you compared the stress susceptible, stress resilient and controls, they found that the resilient mice actually didn't have the same gene expression as the controls, which you might expect. They actually had completely different gene expression levels to controls and stress susceptible. Wow. And in fact, they had more changes uh, compared to the controls than the stress susceptible mice, which I thought was really interesting because it just shows that, you know, there's something actively happening there to make you resilient. It's not like, you know, oh, you're just the exact same as control, like your brain, not your brain, but like your cells are working, uh, gene expression is changing to make you resistant to the stress that you've undergone, which I thought was a very interesting concept. Yeah. Um, so, so it's not like one innate thing that's different. It's like how you actually respond to it and your whole, you know, repertoire of proteins or whatever it is that can respond yeah. to stress is different in resilient mice versus ones that succumb to, to depressive like symptoms. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the things they found was um, that in resilient mice, the epigenetic regulation of carbon five, one of those tight junction proteins uh, was different and, um, because carbon five uh, was in the stress susceptible mice, which led to that blood brain barrier breakdown. And so in resilient mice, they were able to keep uh, carbon five. And I'm not sure if it was upregulated, but it was definitely still there. I mm, actually could have just been a stronger that. version or something. Yeah. Or, or something. I, yeah. I'm assuming because it's epigenetic, it's some sort of like acetylation or like oh yeah so, some you know, sort of methylation. thing to make it yeah more stable or something like that yeah, yeah. so yeah um but yeah That's so it's just kind of to show that there is like a genetic predisposition of that risk um but you do need something for from the environment to kind of see it um yeah. i suppose which i don't know i just thought that was really interesting and yeah um also then this is kind of related but not so i can't really do a smooth transition but uh <laughs> drugs um tr crossing the blood brain barrier um um and that how they're looking at the moment you know to treat these conditions that maybe well first of all like i said maybe it's not just the neurons maybe it's also this blood brain barrier that we need to be looking at but if say we are trying to treat neurons and we're trying to get our drug across the barrier maybe it's not actually getting across because of this really strict uh, barrier and how efflux pumps are just pumping it out um, and so they're looking at trying to actually regulate the barrier maybe you can somehow decrease expression of certain proteins uh, which will allow you to get over across they're also using I suppose kind of a Trojan horse kind of model where you have these nanoproteins basically you, you attach your drug to some sort of something that looks similar to a receptor 
an, an endogenous receptor that would normally bind and be able to cross the membrane barrier. So that way, you know, your the receptor will bind to it, thinking it's something that should be allowed to cross, but actually your drug is attached, yeah. and that way they can get it across. So they're trying out all these different ways. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so hopefully, once once we understand what's going wrong, we're able to get drugs across the blood brain barrier. I think it'll be much easier to treat uh, conditions and I don't think we'd have as many people not responding uh, yeah. which is something to look forward to you know yeah um, there's, there's that issue that we still don't completely know the underlying cause or sometimes there's mm-hmm. several underlying causes as we said earlier there's many different things either throughout the body or in the brain so I think yeah. even if we can solve the drug delivery problem it'll be really tough to see what targets we need to hit and there might be many targets so yeah yeah, yeah that is the thing the many targets <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting area, though, like every bit of progress, obviously, you know, gets a bit closer to the answer, even if that answer Mm -hmm. is very complicated and involves many parts. Yeah, Um, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, um, I I guess I should go into, you know, everyone's least favorite topic at the moment, I'd say uh, COVID. So, um, (laughs) yeah, so relating it back to the delirium cases I was talking about earlier and how that's associated with inflammation obviously COVID-19 is a highly inflammatory disease. It's not necessarily the virus itself that is causing all the damage. It's the way it overactivates your immune system. And Mm. this is shown to correlate with more severe uh, delirium. So since the pandemic began, there's been many more cases of delirium than there had been before. Really? Yeah. So I didn't know that. This also feeds into then the whole idea of long COVID. Um, So there's actually a really good article in Nature by um, Mm, someone called Michael Marshall. Um, who sort of summarized um, long COVID and what we understand about it. So um, the most common symptoms of long COVID are fatigue, cognitive dysfunction, which is like brain fog, and also um, sickness following exertion. So you, you exercise okay. or work hard on something and you just feel really sick, really down. So, you know, it actually has a lot of um, symptoms that are similar to chronic fatigue syndrome. So there's, there's a lot of uh, investigation into whether there's a link between, you know, these two, are they actually the same kind of disorder? We're just giving them different names, but scientists yeah. are sort of cautious to paint them with the exact same brush at the moment because we really have a lot to find out about long COVID because obviously it's such a new phenomenon since the virus itself is quite new. So um, many people with long COVID actually experience like fluctuations in their symptoms. So some days they feel better and then the illness returns. It's just sort of relapse and remitting a disease mm-hmm. that comes and yeah. goes so to treat this there's obviously a lot of interest because there's so many people in the world unfortunately being infected with covid every day and a, and a lot of these people are going to end up with long covid so the nih in america their sort of health authority has committed 1.15 billion dollars for research into long covid um but the ima- exact amount of numbers of people who suffer from it is actually still unknown but the best yeah. guess at the moment is um it's about 14 percent of people who contract the virus, who will um, then experience long COVID, which is quite big. 14% yeah. not, not sound like a lot, but when you're talking about millions of people being infected, that's going to be quite a number, especially mm-hmm. if these symptoms of brain fog and fatigue are going to be very long lasting. You know, that's a very debilitating thing um, yeah. to, to carry for your whole life. Um, and then very strangely, um, long COVID symptoms are actually much more common in women than in men. And the reason that's strange is because deaths of COVID-19 are much higher in men. So it's actually the opposite balance. So is it something got to do with the way 
that maybe women's immune systems are better at preventing death, but actually then cause some side, some sort of inflammatory response that leads to long COVID. So it's this kind of weighing up of uh, different responses and different consequences. Um, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so the biological cause of, of all this long COVID stuff actually is still unknown. So theories range from it being slightly like an autoimmune disease where the immune system goes out of control after infection. Um, and, and there's also the idea that virus fragments could cause problems. So these small parts of the virus that float around and keep activating your immune cells, even though the whole virus isn't there, it's only the little bits that survived yeah. after your immune system um, eliminated them. So again, it's, it's very similar to chronic inflammation in a lot of ways. It's all about overactivation of the immune response are all the theories at the moment. It could be something else, but that seems to make the most yeah. sense. Um, so the whole idea of linking it with chronic fatigue syndrome is also because um, chronic fatigue syndrome is also seen um, after viral infections the majority of the time. So it might be the same underlying cause. It might be something like the viral flag, flag, uh, fragments <laughs> floating around <laughs> and causing inflammation. Um, so Dr. Uh, Aiko Iwasaki of Yale University, um, people might know her if uh, they sort of follow immunologists on Twitter, maybe that's a nerdy thing to do, but uh, <laughs> she's very good at science communication. Um, her Twitter handle is at viruses immunity. I would recommend if anyone's interested in long COVID or viral immunology to, to follow her account, it's great. Um, so anyway, her lab is investigating whether vaccines can actually help to treat long COVID because she <laughs> hypothesizes that they could help remove these parts of the virus that sort of linger and cause these problems. So if you get a really good vaccine that can help your immune system recognize all parts of the virus, then hopefully you can actually eliminate those small fragments and they won't lead to this constant uh, relapse and remitting of symptoms and of inflammation. So it's so an interesting this is, idea. Is this, she means like a different vaccine to the one that's currently going out to stop you from getting COVID. Um, it could she be a different one... vaccine, but actually at the moment, she's like looking at this with the idea of the current vaccines. So the research is still ongoing. Um, so she's actually oh, okay. recruiting people to her trial, um, people who've been huh. infected uh, with COVID and are experiencing long COVID, but still haven't received the vaccine. Um, ah, okay. So if she can get those people in the trial, she can look at their blood, let's say before um, mm -hmm. the yeah. vaccine afterwards and see if there's an improvement in their symptoms and what changes in their blood. So it could be really interesting to see could the viruses actually be used not only as a preventative, but as a treatment yeah. of the long-term symptoms? Of course, this is just an idea. It might not come mm -hmm. to fruition, but wouldn't that be yeah. great? You know, yeah. you know va a vaccine has two uses. Um, so, so good. Yeah. So uh, another thing is long COVID affects multiple organs. Um, so really strangely, this includes the brain. So this is why it ties into everything else uh, that we've been talking about. So this is thought to be why long COVID has several neurological symptoms. So as I said, like the chronic fatigue and all that kind of thing. So a paper by um, Mindheart et al. in Nature last year showed that uh, the virus can actually enter the brain through olfactory neurons. So olfactory, that basically yeah. means smell. So you, you probably know that, uh, you know, loss of smell is a very common symptom of COVID. We've mm -hmm. all been told this for a long time because it's something that's pretty easy to demonstrate. But part of the reason uh, that this could be the case is actually because when you breathe the virus in through your nose it might actually be able to attach to these ace2 receptors that it binds to and actually get into the neurons in your nose and once it does that and causes a lot of damage that'll obviously get rid of your sense of smell because the neurons are what take the signal to your brain but the problem is we now think that they can travel up these neurons all the way 
through your brain. So they don't only eliminate it down at the bottom, but they actually travel all the way up. And that's how they can cause long COVID. Um, wow. So this paper that I mentioned um, actually demonstrated this in a variety of animals and in humans through autopsies of people who died from COVID and demonstrated that the virus was found all through these neurons and actually made their way to the brain through following these neurons all the way up. So that's a pretty scary thought to think that you could breathe yeah. it in and it could find its way to your brain because um, while there are several viruses that do that, it's not you know the most common route for an infection to take. So it's a, quite a scary one. Um, mm -hmm. So like the, a higher risk of psychiatric disorders and stroke following COVID infection have also been uh, demonstrated. And this could again be because it gets into your brain through these neurons. So, um, and then also worryingly, there's evidence of reductions in gray matter, which are involved in memory and your sense of smell as well. So it could actually start to impact your memory in the long term as it spreads throughout your brain. So, um, yeah, I think all these kind of facts are really what I think for young people should be things you think about when, you know, I think a lot of young people are still a little bit like, oh, you know, as long as the older people I know are vaccinated, I'll be fine. I can yeah. sort of you know, be a little bit more carefree than other people. But, you know, when I hear about these kind of things, even though it's less common in younger people, these long COVID mm -hmm. symptoms, it is still something. And that is not something I, you know, I don't think anyone yeah. wants to deal with in their life. Um, it's, it sounds like a pretty terrible illness. Uh, it would be great if they could find drugs through these massive programs that they're funding, or maybe the vaccines after infection, uh, yeah. solve it. But until those things are shown, I don't think I'd be too, uh, too easy going uh, <laughs> yeah just get vaccinated man be grand <laughs> yeah i'm working on it <laughs> yeah just fly to the u.s or wherever they're doing a really good job and <laughs> yeah just hop yeah. on the list unfortunately yeah no no vaccine for me yet i'm not on the list but um yeah i, I think i will be getting it soon actually because i'm moving to the uk and they're doing my age group over there so um, i think it'll only be a matter of weeks before i get my vaccine which should be good yeah. So, um, yeah, I mentioned that other viruses can also infect the brain. So those are sort of scary viruses that we think of, like Spanish flu, measles, polio and Zika. Um, yeah. So everyone sort of knows that those cause um, some pretty terrible effects. And thankfully, measles and polio can be, you know, eliminated through vaccination. So, again, COVID is something that, you know, if, if we use vaccines properly, we can mostly eliminate we probably won't be able to completely eliminate just because of its ubiquitous nature that's all over the world now but even if we can eliminate the vast majority of it that would be great because these symptoms again would really have a massive impact on people's lives so mm. the the more we can stamp this out the better so as yeah. usual vaccination is uh is the best thing ever <laughs> <laughs> you're just using this platform as an excuse to have everyone to get vaccinated for everything <laughs> i mean that's a that's a pretty good uh, good thing to do i think uh <laughs> yeah. So, enough, um, yeah yeah that's that's pretty much all i have here on covid in the brain there's lots of things going on right now it's such a fast moving area but uh yeah i, I didn't go crazy into all the detail because uh again the neuroanatomy thing isn't really uh the easiest thing in the world to to read yeah and it's uh, harder so again to simplify it and talk about it on a podcast never yeah. mind understanding it myself which would be tough <laughs> enough yeah yeah i was just thinking there you're when you're talking about long covid and studying it um like the fact that it's long will just mean that the process will take a long time you know but yeah. then i mean i suppose you did mention that there are people that already have long covid um, and yeah. so it might speed things up but yeah it's yeah. kind of annoying because like you want to get it done and you want to study it and you want the problem solved and when it's something that takes such a long time 
it just means that the studies are going to take a long time. Yeah, actually, the, the definition of long COVID, though, seems to vary. I think some oh, yeah, bodies are I saying know. it's if you have symptoms longer than four weeks after infection, then that's long COVID. Others are saying okay. 12 weeks. But there are reports of people who, you know, many months after they're infected, yeah. you know, um, still have it. And there's people who, from near the start of the pandemic, have it. So we don't know how long it will be. It could be lifelong. And that's why they're really rushing to try to get some sort of treatment yeah. um, for people. Yeah. So at least the effort is there and hopefully they'll find something. And if it's the vaccine, which is already produced, that'd be even better. Yeah, that'd be so, that's, yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just like, it's already done. Yeah. But um, yeah, that was kind of a dark twist at the end. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trying to keep it lighthearted, it's, it's, but. It's a dark topic, COVID and the brain yeah. and that kind of thing. So unfortunately, that's it. Well, uh, yeah, messages, vaccines that we're going to get soon hope and whatnot yeah and whatever they might be able to use the vaccine for uh, long COVID which would be unreal so you don't need to you know make another one or whatever yeah. but uh yeah listening everyone yeah thanks yeah. for listening um we'll yeah. be back shortly we definitely won't take as long a break as that for the next episode maybe don't be making promises like that <laughs> i'm making now. a promise make yeah a we're promise. gonna try our very best uh yeah actually just came out of nowhere we just were like yeah we'll record next week and then we just did nothing. We were just like, oh, I'm actually busy. Oh yeah, me too. And then, yeah, and then and it was exams. Happening. So yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. we're gonna we're trying. Yeah, and now that we're uh, graduated and we're going into more sort of real life, um, it's probably not, not gonna be as easy to do it weekly, but we'll yeah. we'll do our best to keep it pretty regular. If, yeah. Yeah. We will. And if you guys have any ideas of stuff you want to hear about, uh, please let us know. You know, yep. we, we like to hear ideas. Shoot us a message. Um, we have an Instagram. Uh, it's in yeah. our um, Spotify and Apple podcast bios and all, everything. So whatever you're listening on, look at the description and you'll, yeah. you'll see it there. Yeah. So thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll talk to you next time. Not next week, maybe, but next time. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye, guys.